to the podcast, what has now become uh, my own form of self-therapizing, what Orison Welles warned against in his famous admonishment of Woody Allen. Uh, Maybe I'll just pull that quote up because it's an interesting quote, one I like to think about and see if I agree with it. I I, re, I I come back to it over and over again because the way he describes Woody Allen, the hatred that he has for Woody Allen, is uh, pretty legendary. The quote, of course, is, uh, He is arrogant. Like all people with timid personalities, his arrogance is unlimited. Anybody who speaks quietly and shrivels up in company is unbelievably arrogant. He acts shy, but he's not. He's scared. He hates himself. And he loves himself. A very tense situation. It's people like me who have to carry on and pretend to be modest. To me, it's the most embarrassing thing in the world. A man who presents himself at his worst to get laughs in order to free himself from his hangups. Everything he does on screen is therapeutic. I I think it's that last line, especially the use of your own media as some form of uh, self-benediction, as some form of therapizing... Uh, predominantly selfishly, you know, you, you, you can't get out of yourself and experience, you know, the true extroversion of art. It, it has to become about uh, going toward your ego and making you a better figure in the eyes of people. It's not about sharing something with others. It's about uh, making sure that you are being cared for. But that's what I'm doing. Because <laughs> how could I not? You know, I, I'm not like Orison Welles. Unfortunately, I'm more like Woody Allen. Not in the terrible sense, you know, not in the <laughs> not in the molesting sense. But, you know, am I boisterous and bold, magnanimous? You know, do I have all those Orison Welles-like qualities? Or am I a shrinking little violet? Am I a shrinking, neurotic little Jewish violet? Like Woody Allen, it's probably the latter, unfortunately, which is why I use my various creative outlet outlets for self-therapizing. I need that, you know. I don't. I, however, Orison Welles got out his emotional uh, demons, you know. He probably did it in a much more wholesome way. Probably not. <laughs> he had some problems that it didn't deal with. I mean, I also find this quote very interesting because, like. Um, how how do you do art that isn't a form of therapy for yourself? And, um, you know, I think just there there is a soothing quality to the craft of it. You know, forget about the subject matter. Just doing it, just entering the process of it is what gives me pause, is what gives me uh, the ability to continue doing it and to want to work hard at it because there is a pleasurable and self-exploratory quality that is inherent to the creation of art. And, you know, I think that he just, you know, Orison Welles was, is just saying anything. He just hates Woody Allen because he's, you know, gross. <laughs> you know, he's, he's awful and sort of nervous and annoying. And, you know, he, he comes up with all these adjectives to describe what we all know about Woody Allen. He's an annoying little creep. Yeah, you know, he could have summed it up. In, in those three words, but he didn't because he's Orson Welles and he's the coolest man to have ever lived. And so he says a lot of very cool stuff, which, you know, I think are, are of varying degrees of accuracy about Woody Allen. Um, but yeah, that, that uh, timidity too, the, the shrinking in company thing, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's something I do a lot. I think he is right about that, though. I think it is sort of a selfish action to you know, uh, shrink into your own introversion. Not that you should be forced to go out and be social with others, but it's like, you know, that's the point of maturing, is slowly getting the idea in your head that it's not about you anymore. And Lord knows I don't have that idea in my head. I'm still very selfish. I'm still about self-adulation. I'm still about trying to make my ego the primary thing, which I think, you know, is a struggle for a lot of artists, you know, who become monomaniacal and are sort of very uh, self-driven and you know how do you get out of that um but i guess you know why i allude to the comics as therapy bit um 
why I allude to the art as therapy is because I wanted to say comics have largely been therapy for me. Um, earlier this week, I saw a hashtag or something that was trending on Twitter that was uh, comics broke me. And it was really sad to see because it's more like less that comics are like emotionally damning and more that the industry is in a terrible place and it's harder than ever to make a living off of this uh, specific thing. Um, and that in order to get ahead, you really need uh, some sort of money or financial backing if you want to do anything as time-consuming uh, and as cost-consuming as a graphic novel or something like that. Long past are the days when you can be like a, a relatively small person and get picked up by a publisher. You know, it, the market is too oversaturated because uh, it is the opportunity cost for being a comic artist in some respects has gone way down. Uh, like you don't necessarily have to go to any sort of art school or anything like that. You don't have to go to some sort of industrial school. You, you can like pirate software very easily and, you know, get it on a relatively cheap tablet and, uh, you know, you can you can get a pro career going for like three hundred, five hundred dollars, maybe. I don't know. I'm just spitballing. I have no idea what the the numbers are on that. But um, at it, yeah, the opportunity cost is lower, but the competition and uh, the lack of opportunity to uh, be marketed and to find employment is as a result uh, much more elusive so that's why a lot of people are just striking out on their own they've decided you know they can't rely on institutions and go like me they do the the patreon route and supplement their art by also doing the thing that you also have to do nowadays which is be some sort of media personality as well which lord knows i'm doing right now by talking to you um so that's comics broke me is um that's a real phenomenon it's like y you found this thing that you really love doing and you're good at better at than most other people and it provides you with some sense of fulfillment and you look to the past you look to like a generation of boomers where although you know it's always hard to make it as an artist but there was a real path for working-class people back then. You know, you read the biographies of people like Harvey Kurtzman for Mad Magazine or, or like, Joe Orlando or somebody, and it, it's like it always starts the same way. It's like, this guy grew up in a one-room tenement in the Bronx sharing his house with, you know, his five siblings, and, you know, they, like, it's, it's crazy how, like, a lot of those early mad guys just came from total poverty. But there was... Uh, uh, there were systems in place to allow you cheap art education. A lot of those guys went to industrial schools. They obviously had talent from early ages, but, you know, the, uh, there were relatively cheap ways to get an education back then and then to be enrolled in sort of this more systematized world that had a much greater need for illustration uh, because photography was still fairly expensive. And, you know, uh, I think it was viewed with a lot more uh it was viewed with a lot more sanctity there was a, a sort of greater understand public understanding that it is good to employ artisans but maybe i'm wrong about that as well um but at any rate yeah there there were more systemic career opportunities for people that didn't come from a lot of money you could start out poor and uh, end up making a living as an artist I would say uh, much more easily in sort of that golden age when there, there was like that brief post-war sort of uh, coming together in America where they actually had some form of centralization and the marginal tax rate was really high. And, um, you know, there, there was, because of this, you know, horrible just a series of generational bloodlettings that had just happened, there was a renewed sense of taking care of the populace to some degree, which is why you had, you know, tons of cheap housing and everything. And of, of course, you know, America was like the manufacturing powerhouse of the world at that point because they were the only one left. So they had all this money to go to social programs as well. And, you know, part of that was following the legacy of Roosevelt's WPA and stuff like that. But um, 
Yeah, there, it, I think there was an idea that you could be an industrial artist, that there was, you know, a form of art that was a professional sort of nine to five employment type of thing, not stuff that was necessarily like highfalutin and meant for galleries, but like a real, a real working class thing. You, you come in, you, you draw your pictures and then you get out at the end of the day, sort of like, uh, and you could make a living off that. You could get a house on Long Island off of that stuff. And long gone are those days, you know, like those opportunities uh, <laughs> dried up a long time ago. There is way less public support for uh, the arts proportionally than there was in years past. And um, yeah, just uh, also a market that has too many people in it as well. Uh, so it is tough to break through. And of course, you know, the ever tightening grip of uh, companies that are bought out by VC and, you know, our ever-increasing demand for free entertainment as well as consumers and our expectation that entertainment be free as well, I think sometimes contributes to that. You know, uh, we, uh, like, look at the music industry, you know, the bottom fell out of that. It's still very possible to you know, make stuff, but you see like bands like Stars or other or other bands like that saying that every time we go on tour, it's a money loser because you, you know the bottom fell out of this market because it used to be you made your money on album sales or in movies you used to make your money on DVD sales or you know with art you used to buy more physical copies of comic books. But I think because of you know stuff like uh, downloading platforms, because of stuff like Napster, you know. Metallica, you know, obviously took it too far, but I did think it instilled a generation of people with a cultural expectation that art is free. You know, more than anything else, it is it is something that should be free or at least very cheap, which is also why the cultural expectation to pay artists, I think, is lower than it might have been in years past. And, you know, all of this contributes to... Uh, uh, Oh, and, you know, talk about getting an education now, you know, you go to fucking SVA or you go to Pratt or something and that costs like 30K, but more, probably way more a year, plus the living expenses in New York. And, you know, you're not going to recoup that shit ever. So, um, yeah, that's why it's it's a really fucked up world if you want to try to make a living as a comics artist. Um, usually you'll have an extra job. Um, it is the passion that sustains you and you're willing to work for less if you're if you're willing to do this thing more because your passion is exploitable uh, <laughs> which is uh, a very sad situation which is also I think part of it is like you see all these young artist types bright-eyed bushy-tailed you know you have these ideas that people want to share in the expression or creation and then you come to the reality of being part of an art market and um that that joy slowly gets wrung out of you as you have to contend with the realities of uh, uh an employment class that is not willing to pay you for what you're worth so yeah i understand that aspect of comics broke me like that's that's real there's nothing i can do about it and you know if i speak against it i'd be hypocritical obviously because i have family money that i've been subsisting on in order to fund my stuff for a little bit now and uh you know before i was in unemployment but now i have a support network i have money that i can rely on that uh means that I don't have to get a day job for a little bit. I'm probably going to have to get one very soon. Um, but I've been very lucky in that respect, which is why I can say that comics haven't broke me yet, or because I also have been, you know, flirting with... It's also been, like, semi-serious, too. I, I have this great... It's hard to think of myself as a cartoonist or a comics artist rather than just a person, just some guy who does comics, who draws comics occasionally, but to, to identify myself as a cartoonist or a comics artist seems very weird as much as it is to identify yourself as doing any job. You know, it's one of the first things people ask, go to, what do you do? What's your occupation? And you say, 
this and you know that's this is what defines me because this is what I do for most of my life and I guess it's true to some degree but you don't want it to be true you don't want to be just one thing you don't want to say I am a cartoonist or I am a comics artist because you want to contain multitudes but you probably don't <laughs> we're usually only good at a very limited amount of things if any if you know and I'm not particularly good at comics either. You know, I know what level I'm operating on. <laughs> but, you know, there is some sort of idiosyncrasy to my work, which I think uh, uh, drives its recognition. I don't know. Who, who the fuck cares? I don't, I don't know. But um, I also wanted to talk about the corollary to Comics Broke Me, which has little to do with the financial reality of making it as a as a comics artist as a full-time comics artist or as a full-time illustrator even you know it's um uh it's more to do with just your spiritual orientation in the world and how to live your life in a way that complies with your understanding of yourself but understanding of, you know, your place in the world around you. Um, it was interesting. Cormac McCarthy, of course, died recently, and everyone was sharing their stories about Cormac McCarthy. And uh, what I find inspiring about him is he would, you know, rather choose to live in poverty in order to continue and to write, to hone his craft rather than, like, expect a speaking, uh, accept a speaking gig at the university down the road for like 2000 bucks he would say no it's all out on the page there i'll be fine living in my dilapidated barn eating beans my wife is very angry at me but that's okay i'll get divorced a bunch possibly because of this unwavering commitment to my art i i don't know i can't i can't but yeah that was one story is like he would get offered money to do stuff and he'd be like no it's all I'm just a writer i'm a writer it's all there on the page leave me alone <laughs> going to eat beans instead of trying to accumulate uh, material wealth by conventional means. And so I found this to be inspiring uh, in some ways, you know, obviously I don't want to live in a dilapidated barn eating peas, eating beans, alienating myself from my significant other for the course of my art. That also sounds kind of bad, but uh, I, I think, uh, I think what inspired me about that is that this is someone that found the thing that he should be doing, the thing that he could uniquely offer the world, which if you find that thing in your life, you are so fucking lucky if you are able to find that thing in your life. Um, And I think if you find that thing in your life very early and you do it for a while and you get burnt out on it that really fucking sucks but i'm also in the lucky situation that i didn't really find that thing not comparing myself to cormac obviously you know he's one of the best fucking writers ever i'm not saying i have any you know i i I come close to (laughs) any part of his literary canon with my penis comics but there is something I had to offer the world, which was, you know, better than my skills as an office worker, you know, better than my skills as, you know, a potential lawyer, you know, those things I was mediocre to bad at, but I found something that I was actually kind of good at. And, you know, a lot of us live through life in this perpetual agonization about our mediocrity. I hate to bring it up again. Uh, but I always do now. I guess I do it every podcast now because it uh, was an interesting experience. But I think that's why people were very mad at you are not special because you always have this inkling of, well, you know, I am not. I'm not that great. You know, nothing I do is of note. People don't comment on it or interact with it in any sort of significant way. You know, I don't I'm not a thought leader. People aren't concerned about what I have to say. You know, most of your life you live like that you know even when you get like a bunch of followers on social media like i do you're still under that apprehension of like you know unless you're very megalomaniacal but it's like 
ultimately I'm just entertainment for someone. Nobody really is has any sort of investment in what I have to say because I'm also like not a pundit and I don't hold myself out to be any sort of pundit or commentator. I I just you know uh, talk about what, what interests me and maybe some people like it. Who knows? Either way, um. So so yeah, that thing finding that thing about you. Or that thing that you enjoy doing and that you can commit to doing. I, I am a true believer that if you can find something in your life that you're willing to work at and get better at. And like, I know it's like a very Germanic or Protestant-ish sort of view. But I think it's even in, into communism, there is like a dignity in work. You know, that's, I think we have to do, you know not just any work, you know, it has to be work that has a fulfillment or a meaning or a purpose to you personally, or is building something that you believe in. Um, but I, I think, you know, if you've ever experienced a life uh, or an extended period of life where you only pursue leisure, as I have, you know, as many of us do in our mid-20s where we just have a, you know, a phase where we have like a shitty job and our lives are dedicated to any time after that job where we're getting as drunk or on drugs as humanly possible. And, uh, you know, you go through that sort of period of pursuing uh, leisure and, you know, trying to be like the dude in the Big Lebowski and trying to not work at any cost and, you know, trying to, you know... Uh, play life in the sort of like on easy mode <laughs> in some sort of way just lean back and you know some people can do that there's nothing wrong with that lifestyle but i find that that was not emotionally fulfilling for me or it led to a strong existential belief that you know i i was nothing and i wasn't doing anything and that's, you know, that that can be one of the most damning things of all to believe. I'm not doing anything. I'm not accomplishing anything, you know. Whether, it's not about having a legacy to hold on to after you die, but, you know, just creating anything that exceeds yourself, you know, that something came from me that will go beyond my flesh. You know, whether you're like a garbage man, that takes pride in their job. I'm sure there's, you know, most garbage men aren't, like, super into being garbage men. I don't know that, actually. It seems like a tough job, but they have a good pension. They tend to pay well. Um, but I'm sure there is, like... I, I, you know, I often fetishize the idea of, like, a blue-collar job. I think about, oh, wouldn't it be romantic if I were a garbage man? Wouldn't it be romantic if I were a plumber? You know, then I... <laughs> you know, when I was... When I quit my job... Uh, my re most recent job because of a mental breakdown, I thought, maybe I'll go to school to be a plumber. <laughs> maybe, because, you know, I, I was thinking that Philip Glass was a plumber for years and years until uh, his music hit it big. He was like a plumber into his mid-40s uh, before he started seeing any dividends from his artwork. So I thought, you know, I could do that. But, you know, I'm not that type of person. I'm, I am I can only commit myself to this this one thing because doing anything else feels like an indignity or it feels like you only have a limited amount of time on earth you have a preciously short amount of time on earth a really limited amount like you i cannot stress to you how short life is <laughs> or it seems that way especially as you get older and time starts moving faster um, so when you think about yourself uh, doing a job that you don't really have a strong personal investment in, that you don't have really a desire to get better at because you have no aptitude for it or it's inherently uninteresting or you feel a disconnect to the goal of your organization, however noble it may be, you know, if, if you're stuck in one of these roles... You freak out. You have an existential nightmare. You know, I think, you know, uh, most of us are usually in a situation where we're in these jobs where um, they're just not right for our personality. Uh, 
but we continue anyway because we need the money and you know that's the only thing we know how to do but going into these day in day out i think is like uh you can tolerate it at first but if you don't find a job you really enjoy doing or have like an investment in or feel like you enjoy the craft of it like i i think like the reason why i'm attracted to those blue collar jobs like a plumber or, or like uh i don't know, or construction is because you can see the craft you can get better at something and you do it every day and you develop this skill that's real and produces something in reality um that is uh, that is functional and um whereas with like when you're at an emails job you know getting better at doing your little emails is this very abstract exercise and you know you you do so many of them and every day is such a like a slog you don't even know if you're actually improving or not if you're if you're like me and you were not particularly good at your emails job so i think that is uh i think that that's just a really important factor in life you gotta enjoy if you're stuck in capitalism even if you're not in capital even if we're at the the commune and we're in the like post uh, capitalist utopian society and we can generate everything from the uh uh from the replicator you know and we are completely uh set for resources you know all right do you think you want to are you going to become the wally people in that situation do you want to become the placated you know uh, uh, big gulp drinking boneless uh, person you know or or do you want to be like star trek do you want to use this newfound freedom to educate yourself and to explore and to devote yourself to some higher notion of humanity I'd like to think it's the latter. I'd probably end up just being the former. I'd probably, I wouldn't, if I'm in the Star Trek universe, I'm not uh, in Starfleet, you know. I'm, I am in a personal holodeck. I have my neat bucks from the communist utopian society, you know. I'm eating, I, I, I'm using my replicator to replicate Slim Jims. It's a good time. A good time is had by all. A good time is had <laughs> by all. But yeah, it's like, um, once your once your needs are met you know what do you want to do or even once your needs are not met what do you want to do like on the uh, on the commune you know what do you want to do do you really just want to be the bard or do you want to contribute to something um i don't know where <laughs> where i'm going with this but the, i i think you know my basic point overall that i've been leading to is that working at something that you're kind of good at you have sort of an aptitude for doesn't feel that bad if you find that thing latch on to it like grim death because <laughs> you know that is uh that is hard to come by in this world um something that you feel the desire to get better at you know i think that's why it's heartening to pe see people, you know, doing speed running or, you know, doing games uh, vi like video game championships where they don't necessarily have a hope of making a living off of it because that is the thing that fulfills them. But I, I think some people are able to deal with their jobs, jobs they hate in a way that w it was not as existentially damning as my experience with it. I think most people are able to do that. If, in fact, if most people weren't able to do that, nothing would get done in this goddamn society. I think that's also the question you have as an artist, you know, why do I get to be an artist? You know, do I have something to say or something to express that is so wholly unique that it deserves to be my career? Am I really giving something back to people or is it just some form of transient entertainment that is really valueless in in every sense of that word um and uh i think that's something you know you struggle a lot with as an artist uh reconciling that idea that you aren't really contributing anything you know i, I talked about this uh with branson reese uh on the episode where i interviewed branson reese but you know in the on the post-apocalyptic commune you know we're both dead you know we're not <laughs> You know, it's cartoons or nothing. I only exist in this uh, this capitalist society, this decadent capitalist society that allows 
multiple people to to make decent livings off of goddamn cartoons you know why should you know then why should you be able to make a living why should you be able to make a decent living off of cartoons isn't isn't it turning the the clock back isn't aren't we dumbing each other down with this constant claptrap this nonsense especially the stuff i do you know (laughs) but no it is important and ultimately you realize it's important if you're like me and you or like maybe cormac mccarthy you realize it's the only thing you can do you've tried everything else and this is it this is the one thing that doesn't make you feel like killing yourself if you do it 10 hours a day or if yeah so it maybe not the one thing that doesn't make you feel yourself, but one of a small handful of things that doesn't make you feel like killing yourself if you do it for extended periods and if it dominates a large portion of your life, you know. And uh, I think you're unlucky in some ways if you discover this thing when you're too young. As I said before, sometimes when you figure this out really early, what my thing is, you know... You devote everything to it, and either, you know, that means you work really hard and, you know, because you found it when you were so young, you get a leg up on other people who maybe started later in their lives. But a lot of the time, and I think a lot of what I saw in the Comics Broke Me tweet are a lot of people that figured out that comics was their thing. Comics brought them a certain level of self-worth and dignity, and they felt that you know, they, they tried to make a living off of it and they got burned out after doing it. Even though, you know, you can see examples of lots of people that use that hashtag who are obviously brilliantly talented. But, uh, you know, the, the market, the market, it's oversaturated. It's who you know. It's inherently nepotistic. There's a lot of unfairness to it. And you're just constantly having to deal with that while still wanting to develop your craft and maybe create something that exceeds you as a person and uh i wanted to say that's really how comics saved me i had shunned the idea of being an artist because my dad was a muralist for a lot of his life and he did not make a ton of money and This was a huge point of contention in my parents' marriage Uh, because, you know, raising a kid, uh, paying down a mortgage, you know, it's difficult for, uh, it's difficult on a, a double income, but if you're not making that much, you know, and if you also have like a, a series of hobbies that are also very expensive, you know, sometimes that can uh, create tension within within your situation. So I think that's sort of what averted me from admitting to myself that I had this aptitude or this inherent inclination towards art as something that I would practice for a lot of my life because I saw how difficult it was to make it work my dad was very talented and he worked extremely hard and he still had trouble just making a decent living even in an uh, art world that was slightly less hostile it was still hostile you know it's always been difficult to make it as an artist but it definitely was less hostile in the past um i mean just on cost of living alone too you know you can uh you know larry david lived in uh, subsidized apartments if you if you went to the like lower east side in 1975 you're like oh here's a room for 75 dollars and then that that's it that's your room you can you don't have to work a full-time job you can devote yourself to developing your craft so yeah i i i think just seeing a personal struggle of somebody that did really try and through just an inability to understand the marketing part of it, an inability to really understand the business part of it, um, 
he he just couldn't get around it. And because I knew that I didn't really have that entrepreneurial spirit or business mind to fulfill that element of artwork, I don't I didn't think I wanted to pursue it. Uh, additionally, you know, I went to a I went to a fancy private school, which was very strange because I I had a I had a scholarship there. I was it's weird it's weird being middle class but being the poorest kid at your very wealthy private school. I maybe not the poorest kid, but you know, among the poor the poor children of my school, which is, you know, not very poor at all. I still lived very comfortably. I always thought I was poor because the kids' houses I was going to, they all had like swimming pools and like tennis courts and stuff. And I was like, wow, I don't have anything at all. Then I gained a sense of proportion later in life. Um, but yeah, I, I think also being around this wealth and being around all these people that eventually aspired and went on to develop these professional careers. Um, I thought that's what it had to be, right? You know, I've been given this education. I've been given this uh, access to uh, this professional world. I have some some sort of academic competence. You know, I guess I will try and be a lawyer. You know, I'll try and be something, you know, good and respectable. And all this time, you know, I... I I, I was like a music major in college, but with the sort of implied in, in knowledge that I was going to law school after there would be some sort of professional grad school situation. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I pursued the law degree under that apprehension and I was just fucking miserable. I've said this before on a previous solo podcast where I've talked about my life, but yeah, you can listen to the depressive episode if you want to hear more about that. Uh, but yeah, it just was not right for me. So not right for me that I was just more depressed than I had ever had been because I had got myself into thinking that this is it. You know, this is the only way. You've seen how hard it is for artists out there. You know, what you're feeling right now, this, this existential gut-wrenching dread about you committing yourself to uh, one third of your life spent in discomfort, you know, fuck that. You know, that's how most people live. You should, you should get along, you know, and it's certainly better. It's certainly a better option than being a goddamn fucking artist, right? You know, than living that life and having to push yourself and having to constantly search for opportunities and scrounge for uh, everything. And, uh, because I didn't want to do that, because I didn't want to live with that uncertainty, I kept plugging along until, you know, it all came crashing down. I had, a, like, a couple of mental breakdowns. And I quit my job. I had quit a very good job. Uh, it wasn't like a law job, but I had gotten a very decent office job with great benefits. It was something that uh, wasn't evil. It was, a, it was a good place to work at. I had So I had had that going. I believed in the mission of the work. And... It was, it was office work, though. It was email's job. It was drafting letters. It was, you know, uh, doing phone calls, you know, being contrite and polite on the, on the fucking phone. And it was a nightmare. <laughs> a goddamn nightmare. It shouldn't be. That should be a job that, you know, a normal person should be able to do without much complaint. And, you know, I, I'm sure uh, people of, of a, uh, any capacity could probably do that. But for me, it was just, you know... Every day, this dread of coming in and having to do this thing that I was profoundly uninterested in and that I couldn't get better at because I, it was so inherently stultifying. So, yeah, so I quit my job. And for like four months, I just didn't do anything. I was on unemployment, uh, which is we have fairly decent unemployment in Canada. So I was able to coast for a bit on there. Um, and, uh, but I was just doing nothing. I was like so depressed. I was just only sleeping, you know, only watching TV, not doing anything a day. If I, if I like showered that day, that was a good day. And I had been doing comics while I was working at the job. I was doing my series of like unfunny and severe 
political cartoons while I was uh, my last year at that job. So I had an inkling that I wanted to do comics. That still wasn't the thing yet. I, I still didn't understand that. I, I had the shape of what I wanted to do, but the type of thing that I was doing was something that I felt obligated to do just because there had been this big explosion in left media and, you know, almost sort of half nobly because I was like, these are good ideas and I want to spread them. But half cynically is like, oh, there's a big, there's a big explosion in left media. Maybe I can, I can get on this gravy train. Maybe I can get on this Chapo train, you know, very, very, you know clout chasing psychopath idea <laughs> you know to some degree which i think is why they didn't uh, they didn't take because you know they, they weren't really honest to what i thought was funny or what i wanted to express or put out in the universe and then so i quit the, the, those comics you know i stopped doing them I like quit my job around the same time because of the just the stress I was experiencing at it and did nothing for four months. I felt, you know, like a talentless loser. And uh, then, you know, for whatever reason, I just started doing them again. <laughs> Actually, you know, I can tell you the reason. And the reason is very silly and sort of weird. But, uh, you know, I'll say it anyway. It's not silly or weird, but uh, it involves a, a well-known internet figure um, who, in some ways, I have to thank for, you know, inadvertently launching my my interest in comics back again. But uh, also, I sort of want to keep an arm's length from because I've seen, I've seen some stuff about him that is like, eh, I don't know about that. Uh, but... Uh, during my political comics run, or during my, you know, leftist, supposedly leftist comic, uh, it's uh, so fucking embarrassing, but I'd made a comic about Vosh, and, because uh, he, he was coming up in the media sphere around the time that I was doing it, and, um, I don't know, he, he seemed to be, like, this strange... He called himself leftist, but sort of more of a centrist, liberal type of guy. So he was easy pickings on sort of the more left or like Marxist Lenin y Twitter, people that had, you know, more communist bona fides than he did. Um, yeah, he, so I made a comic about, you know, this Vosh guy is so off putting. Who is this for? And then there's a legion of guys that look exactly like Vosh that said, we are a legion. Uh, it was sort of meant to be an insult, uh, I guess. He ended up liking the cartoon a lot, and he re reposted it a bunch. Uh, and one time, at like one of the height of my depression, uh, he re reposted the comic. And uh, I started getting a, a bunch of followers on Twitter because someone had identified that it was, it was me who had done it. And... Then in my head, I was like, shit, I got a bunch of fucking, got a bunch of fucking Vosh kids following me now. I guess I better produce, they're expecting comics now. I guess I, I better produce something for these goddamn Vosh kids. But it's like, I didn't want to do political material anymore. I was so depressed that, like, I don't think I could be creative for periods longer than, like, 15 or 30 minutes. So I just started doing these really crude comics about little blob men. <laughs> having sex with each other which was um sort of in my mind at the time because like uh a, a big portion of my comics and maybe something that i want to get into i know i've been i've been shying away from it recently i've been doing as much as many gay sex comics as many penis comics recently some of that is just you know you write so many penis jokes you know there there aren't any more left now i have to do comics about pop culture you know maybe i'll incorporate more dicks into that but i i think part of it and sort of a running thread in my comics is this disgust with my own body, uh, <laughs> like this this sort of sense of body dysmorphia. Because um, you know I'm not I'm not uh, I don't work out you know I don't exercise I'm not I'm not great looking in the torso department. Just say that much. I, I'm I'm fine. You know I know intellectually that I am not unattractive. I know that I'm I'm hitting sort of the middle middle of the pack there i'm like there's nothing terribly 
you know, uh, strange about me or, you know, off-putting. You know, I don't have Gramlinian face. Uh, which, you know, even if you do have Gramlinian face, if you're not Gramlinian, if you have a better personality than Gramlinian, you can exceed that. But, oh, now I'm getting to a hole about attractiveness. But who, who cares? But the point is, even at, like, a relative, relatively average level of looks, I, I think... Uh, there is this sense that love is only meant for really beautiful people or for people that, you know, are deserving of it because they are inherently more sexually attractive uh, or there is something that is, you know, more desirable about them. And you spend i a lot of this project has been spending a lot of my time convincing myself that it isn't necessarily about that initial lust or that initial arousal but rather about a shared and prolonged intimacy that you have with people you know even the people who you fuck for one night you know there is something more important than just base attractiveness in doing that which is very funny because I also don't fuck. You know, I don't go out. I'm not on Grinder. I don't do anything. I devote myself to these comics instead of doing relationships. But I think, you know, part of it is just uh, this this year-long process of coaching myself to not f- feel like I, I am so ugly that I am undateable. And I think that comes out in my... Uh, that comes out in the comics a lot where it's sort of a bunch of chonky-looking guys... I guess they're sort of thin, but they're sort sort of abstract, you know, what body type they are. They're sort of blobby. They're generally pretty thick. They don't have thin limbs, and I think that's sort of an interesting thing in my comics. How everyone has pretty thick limbs because uh, I don't know if that's there's they're implied to be heavy or anything like that. But I, I guess it makes it more neutral. They have a more neutral body type, which allows me to think, you know, that's what I look like, basically. I have this sort of neutral body type. I am this sort of blobby figure with thick lips. <laughs> I guess that's true. It's like a very uh, a very common thing uh, for artists to draw characters that end up looking like themselves. Uh, a famous Disney animator, Nick Ranieri, uh, no relation to Keith Ranieri. <laughs> Ranieri is, uh, is the name is spelled differently, but... Uh, Nick Ranieri, who is like uh, a guy who has a big thin head uh, and he's sort of lanky, he would often draw characters that were lanky and had thin heads like Lumiere from uh, Beauty and the Beast or Jafar or Hades, you know. Uh, And if you're a short squat guy, you tend to draw guys that are shorter in squat. Like Jack Kirby was this like five foot four brick shithouse of muscle, so it's no wonder he draw drew all these wide guys, these guys with wide heads, and you know. <laughs> but um, I think yeah, that's also part of it is just because my major reference for the human body is my own body. I guess I'm drawing characters that sort of look like that vaguely are shaped like how I'm shaped. Um, and I think drawing that over and over again is sort of this affirmation that you know it's this body's not so worthless. Um. Also, you know, I just find, uh, as does everyone, and probably influenced a little by uh, Cumtown in this respect, but, you know, just hearing uh, Stav uh, do his bit where he's just singing a song and it's like, Sucking a little elastic now, sucking a little elastic, sucking a dick and in my ass. You know, that shit, <laughs> it, it was like... Uh, it had this uh i realized that the dumbest shit is the funniest shit that's the problem is like you can you can make the cleverest joke on earth you can make the best bon mot you can make a nice reference to candide in your in your witticism but ultimately it's never going to be funnier than sucking a little elastic now sucking sucking my <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm i'm cracking myself up now just you know thinking about that really stupid premise you know louis you know a terrible, a terrible man, Louis C.K. But, but, <laughs> in that one t- talking funny special, he has a bit that I sort of reference in in the idea that humor is uh, ultimately something that is stupider is somehow is always the funnier thing. 
because Louis C.K. talks about he going out on the road and seeing like the worst local comics, but them doing bits that just end up sticking in his head later, like a guy with an acoustic guitar instead of sitting on the dock of the bay. He says, sitting on a cock because I'm gay. <laughs> or Louis C.K. will be, you know, in the shower weeks later singing, singing sitting on a cock because I'm gay. <laughs> just... It's, it's so fucking stupid, but it makes you laugh. And so I think allowing that level of, that lack of pretension as well, you know, once I stopped believing that I was doing anything of importance and that I'm just, you know, there to make something dumb and maybe, you know, uh, maybe a little bright, maybe not bright in the smart sense, but light, you know, something that is doesn't make you feel bad necessarily something that you know just is there to make you make you laugh a little make you laugh a little hopefully and so i think discovering that the comics plus the sort of gag oriented nature that i felt comfortable with um you know that was that was really big for me because this felt like something more than ever before more than you know even my other big creative preoccupation which was music that i i would do that on and off and i didn't like to practice and it always felt sort of chore like in some respects whereas with this comic stuff it was way easier and more natural to do it for like hours and hours and hours at a time and commit myself to it you know and that's why you know in the early days of the stuff i was doing like 3 4 uh, comics a day and you know I had this process where I would just do inks only so it was really streamlined but I had never had that before I really had never had that before something that you know inspired me to work on it even during my downtime you know something that I would skip downtime in order to keep practicing and to want to get better at and you know it's I feel lucky to have discovered it you know, 10 years after the fact or 10 years after, like a lot of people discover what their thing is. Usually you you sort of figure it out when you're a teenager and then you pursue something there. But I, I think, you know, having been on the other side and having been in careers or been committed to making money in ways where I was working at jobs that I just couldn't do and I knew I was bad at, and was faced with that indignity constantly of being forced to do something you're bad at. You know, that's like, that sounds like a hellish torture to me. <laughs> and that's how a lot of people are living their lives and doing their jobs. I'm forced to perform in front of people every day and do something that I'm not very good at. You know, that's hell. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, you know, it's not as bad as hell, but uh, it's still not so good. And, uh, uh, yeah, that, I, I, if you do that for a while, if you do that for 10 years, then once you finally find the thing that you actually can get better at and you're willing to commit yourself to to train and get better at, then it's, it's like an indescribable feeling. It's like a, a lifeline. It's like you never had that before. You never had that sense of purpose or dignity before, which is, you know, why, even though I'm uh, still not making money up off it, I'm, I'm committing myself to it a lot uh, because it feels natural in a way that nothing has ever felt. And in that respect, I owe everything to comics. I... I owe everything, you know, talk about eradicating that sense of purposelessness, you know, that, that really existentially damning thing of, you know, there is nothing that defines me. There is nothing that gives my life any sort of idiosyncrasy or essential purpose beyond just being a drone. I, you know, maybe you're you're not concerned with that sort of thing, which I think is ultimately a healthier thing. But you know, uh, I I think you're lying if you're if you're not 
concerned with your ultimate goal or where do you fit in or you know i think that's what we're all trying to do right is it, we're always in that negotiation of trying to fit in some people do it more easily but i think we're always that that spot where we fit is ever changing and shifting and you know it is exhausting to struggle to keep up with the shape of it and uh yeah i i think uh i think uh, it it's it's just once you find something that works for a while where you it's not necessarily exhausting to fit the shape of that little that little receptor there it it's like fucking crack <laughs> you know it's like i remember and even before i received you know any sort of recognition or or notoriety from the comics uh from the from the gay comics i i should say they were providing me with like an immense amount of peace you know you know, way better than, you know, attacking my depression way better than any SSRI had ever attacked it before because this felt real. There were results to it. You know, however else I failed that day, I was able to do a comic. You know, however else, you know, I fucked up or, you know, didn't pay my bills on time or, you know, didn't shower because I'm, like, too depressed or anything like that here was something that i could do and at the beginning i could do these in like 15 minute increments so my depression lethargy didn't even affect it that much i, I could really i i could really feel that i was developing something building something and uh why comics though <laughs> you know why not anything else you know <laughs> that that's the other question you have is like oh god why is i finally found this thing that uh, lots of people search their entire lives for and never find this you know this occupation where i have an inherent sense of purpose and it's cartoons it's it couldn't have been something more serious it couldn't have been you know something where people will respect oh that guy you know he's a He's a real smart lawyer. He knows how to do stuff. He works really hard and he gets really... No, it's cartoons. That's the thing that I'm going to devote myself to and spend an inordinate amount of time thinking about and practicing. It's cartoons. Because, you know, uh, you start worrying if that... Am I... Will I never grow up? Is this part of my juvenile holdover Is that, that I'm into these fucking cartoons? But no, I think... Uh, I think... Uh, I, I sort of have an answer to why cartoons or why I think comics specifically, the use of sequential art and of text and picture pictures combined together, why I think comics are important or why I think they, they reflect something to me that other mediums of aren't, aren't capable of capturing is I think it is the language of memory to me. More than any other art form, I think comics to me capture the unique quality of memory if you know films are like how we dream and films you know really influence how we dream obviously uh you know when films were in black and white people would dream in black and white but you know uh, lots of filmmakers david lynch steven spielberg you know all of them are like the movies are our dreams right but to me comics are like how we experience memory you know, in the same way that I think sort of literature is, is close to how we experience memory. But the way that we remember things, and especially the way that I remember things, and I don't know if this is a function of me uh, just reading a lot of comics and that affecting my perception, but when I'm trying to specifically recall something in my brain, it looks like a comic. It has this vague assemblage of a picture, a tableau, and words associated with it in my head that sort of flashes. And I think when I try and think of events that happened in the past, or I try to think of what happened last night, it rarely takes the form of a film in my memory, but rather like flashes of pictures uh, with uh, the empty boring space cut out in between. Uh, so I think that's why I sort of comics when you get really into them have that 
very nostalgic quality. Uh, I say inherent a lot. I've been I don't know why. I like the word. It has good syllables, but there's a nostalgic quality inherent to comics that I think um, separate it from another medium because it it it, it like almost uh, it, the way that you know Proust would try and evoke memory, try and evoke the sort of specific detailed tangents of memory in his literature work. You you can do with images in a way that is I I feel closer and more accurate accurate to the way that we experience memory because maybe some people experience memory as long strings of text that would be crazy to me that sounds terrible <laughs> if you're a writer and that's how you experience memory get it get at me message me after the show just send us an email at houseofdecline at gmail dot com but yeah I I think that to me is the essential character of comics which make them irresistible they they really seem like the flashes of reality that we perceive in our internal worlds uh more so than a lot of other uh a lot of other mediums and i think that's why even you know at the level that i'm doing them you know at the uh, I, I think uh it's important for preserving that idea of like uh, comics aren't comics aren't necessarily depictions of fiction, but rather memories of a universe that didn't exist, you know? And I, I, I think even the lowest forms of comics are like that. You know, <laughs> when I say yeah, even control alt delete as H bomber guy, you know, said in that video, that has something very intimate to say about the human condition, even unintentionally. Um, which is why I think, you know, that's the other thing about art, too, is that where whenever you're practicing it, it always has value anthropologically. Uh, I saw the thread on Twitter of people of like, what's a piece of art that makes you cry? And, you know, a lot of people were posting you know, some very sad stuff. A lot of uh, the original post was about Keith Haring, Keith Haring's painting of uh his his declaration of love for his friends who had died of HIV and he would be he would be next up to which is you know fucked up it's weird to understand your death so profoundly and at such a young age um but another one of the things that people said was sad or that had them crying or, or they were posting the pictures of that uh doodles of a young slavic boy that they found which are just very interesting you if you feel this instant sense of connection to the past and you feel the sense this humanity that sometimes is a little hard to glean when you're thinking about history and you're thinking about the course of human events because uh, these people can be fictionalized and in that fictionalization or in that just translating the lives and the breaths and the physicality of these people into words you're always going to be dehumanizing them in some way but seeing the little pictures that this boy drew is like just instant connection you know because it looks like what i drew when i was a kid you know we've been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years and you know you could depict all that you could that meant so much with just these few little details because they situated you somewhere in history and they allowed you to relate to people across space and time those small little doodles you know and uh that's very powerful to me i think that's why it's always worth it for anyone you know even if you're producing bad art or shitty art or jejun art it's like it's a product of its time as well you know and understanding it as a product and in context of its times is really valuable which is also you know why cartoons because especially a daily cartoon it really situates yourself you really situate yourself in time you respond to events that are happening in that year you know especially as you get older and life gets shorter and the clock keeps ticking and ticking and you want and your memory gets worse and worse and you want to remind yourself of just what you were doing that day or, you know, what was going on in my mind at that time. And then to have something to refer to, you know, that's 
that's invaluable. And, you know, it might even live past you. And someone can see the penis, someone in the year 2500 who's doodling a penis comic on their super notebook, you know, they see the penis comic from 500 years ago, and they're like, oh my god, they're just like us. This is situating me in some sort of historical cosmic context, and it's making me emotional right now. And I think that's why cartoons, because however slight they might be, or whatever small amount of entertainment they're coming from you and they're diaristic and they're valuable because they document a human life and uh, I think if you find something like that if you find something in your life that not only is able to give you that sense of purpose through craft and through technically training yourself and through the sense of joy you get at getting better at something, as I think all of us do. And not only does it do that, but that thing also represents something that can exceed you and situate you in a temporal context and make it so that your personal struggle or your ego suddenly becomes universal and relatable to everyone. And it's not your ego anymore. Then it's everyone's. And I, th I think it connects you to that greater consciousness of humankind. And if you're able to find something like that, and you can find it in a lot of places. You can find it as a plumber. You know, you can find it, uh, you know, doing social work. You can find it, uh, you know, trying to do some sort of business or trying to, like, organize something together. You can find, you find it in a lot of ways. But... If you are lucky enough to find it, as I have, in comics, then, you know, you're doing pretty good. And that's what I wanted to say. Comics saved me. And it, besides the financial considerations, which are obviously, you know, very grim, if you're in a situation like I was, and you feel like you've devoted your a large portion of your life to something that is ultimately inconsequential uh then maybe they can save you too if you give them a chance